Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers who not only solve user challenges, but also achieve business goals. In the ninth episode, I spoke with Ben Burns. Ben is an award-winning designer who is currently a digital director at Blind, which is a brand strategy design consultancy based in California. And he is also a COO at The Future, which is an online platform uh, which teaches designers how to run a creative business. That's also the topic of today's podcast. And Ben is the perfect person to talk about this as he has a really fascinating story. So he first became a designer and then at the time of a financial crisis in 2008, he actually went into the law enforcement only to come back to design a few years later. And he shares his fascinating story, how he went from charging 50 bucks a logo to charging several thousand dollars a logo. Um, so specifically, we're going to talk a lot about running a creative business. Um, a few topics that we covered are like why you should not look for more clients, but better clients. What to say to your clients when you try to raise your rates. Um, and so Ben even shared almost like a script word for word that you could use when you call up your client to send them an email. And we also talk about what it takes to sell brand work at premium prices, like five or six figures. Just one more thing before diving into the episode. I've recently created an email course called Measuring Design, where I explain what are design metrics and how you can use them to measure your design work. And not only that, but also how you can present it to non-designers to basically show the value of your work. It's a free five-day email course with a nice framework that I call Design Metric Canvas that you can use on your projects. So to get access to the course, please head to beyondusers.com. And now, without further ado, here's a conversation with Ben. So Ben, I love to start this podcast with uh, getting to know the guests a little bit. So I wanted to ask you, like, what is your story of how you became a designer? Mm. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I was in high school and kind of stumbling around the arts department. And um, the the one class that really spoke to me was photography. And, um, you know, I had been drawing for all my life and I just felt like I wasn't good at it. I felt like I just, you know, I didn't live up to uh, all the other students in my class. And really, technically, I was okay as far as my technical skill, but it was the creative spark that I was missing. And so I would always struggle with trying to find that idea mm-hmm. to put down on page uh, on the paper. And so photography was like this wonderful creative expression for me where the idea phase, it seemed to come to me a lot easier. And it was more about documenting than it was actually creating something from a blank page. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was like, that was, that, that it definitely spoke to me. And a funny story about that is uh, I started down my, uh, journey of photography in my sophomore year of high school. So in the States, mm-hmm. that's the 10th grade. And by the time I was a senior, I had burned through all four of my high school's photography classes. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time I was also in a band and uh, we had just competed in, in battle of the bands. So 
when when I ran out of photography classes to take, I went to the uh, advisor for our arts program and I said, please, his name is Mr. Mercer. I said, please, Mr. Mercer, please let me take another photo class. I will go back and take photo one. I just want to stay in the program. <laughs> well, Mr. Mercer just happened to be the uh, chorus teacher for my high school. And he, 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 he was like, let me, let me do this deal with you. And the deal was, is if I, cause, because he had heard my band play at the battle of the bands, he says, I heard you sing and I would like you to be in chorus. So here's the deal. I will create a photo five class just for you <laughs> and allow you to take photo five. Uh, you'll be the only student in the class if you join my chorus. And I said, yes, that was a no brainer. Um, so that's kind of how I, 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 I took photography all through high school. But mm-hmm. the funny thing is, is like, uh, I don't know if the, the re- weight of the responsibility uh, rested on my high school arts curriculum, but I had no idea what design even was. I didn't know design was a profession. Um, while I was in uh, photo classes, I started using Photoshop. I think Photoshop 1 had just came out or 2, something, you know, very, very basic. And I started playing around with, um, you know, typography and things like that. But I never, I never knew that design was a profession until uh, college. So I got through uh, the first two years of uh, university before I realized that, oh, smokes, like, I, I actually want to be a designer, design <laughs> career for me. What made you feel that design is a career for you? I think it goes back to that creative spark thing. I still struggle with that. Um, whenever I'm looking at a blank page, the idea just doesn't come. And I really feel like design is, uh, for me personally, I know it's a very creative expression for other people, but uh, it's a little bit more logical. And so I can create a lot easier because I can rely on uh, the rules, the grids, like, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So for me, mm-hmm. it's it's all about um the easy way to creativity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is still a lot of work to do, even once you have the idea, right? So, yeah. Yeah. But tell me, like, how did you go from photography, actually, then to becoming a designer? So you said that now, okay, at this point in your in your story, now you know that design is a viable option. But then how did you actually go about becoming a designer? Sure. Yeah. So after high school, I went to to Clemson University and I joined the graphic arts program there and was disappointed with it because it was less about creativity and more about printing processes. Um, And at that point, you know, Clemson was doing some really cool thing with textiles and um, different offset techniques and stuff like that. They were trying to engineer uh, a piece of paper that would rearrange ink depending on the electrical stimulus. Um, so they were doing some really cool stuff, but it wasn't anything that appealed to me. Uh, so I left there. I went to University of South Carolina and University of USC there, you know, I bounced around between a whole bunch of different programs. I started in advertising. Um, I think I, I, I took well, like one uh, design class uh, and then wound up in media arts. But I was in the marketing association and just I was all over the place. So it wasn't until I, I saw this internship for a junior graphic designer with an agency that it really kind of clicked with me. And so I walked, I said, you know, set my resume in, got an interview. 
I walked into this place. I had, uh, a, you know, this uh, black tie business suit situation. Walking into this creative agency, <laughs> I sat down. I oh, sat down man. across the table from this, um, you know, creative director that was like straight out of the '60s. You know, just she had been to Ringling, and it, it was just like it, looking back on myself. It's it's almost comical the way I walked up in that place, all dressed to the nines. Um, but yeah, I interviewed for the spot and, uh, I felt like the interview went great until she asked me to see my portfolio. And uh, I looked at her and I said, what is a portfolio? (laughs) 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 I I had no idea what a portfolio even was. Um, (laughs) but for some reason she saw something in me and she gave me kind of another shot and she was like, Okay, go away for uh, you know. Let's let's meet again tomorrow or the next day. I just want to see some examples of your work. And so, I stayed up for twenty four hours, pulled an all nighter, um, and I just dug into the programs. I put together a proposal from scratch. I think I had six or seven projects, and I brought it all in. Now the work was horrible. Um, I had no formal training in design. I had no informal training in design. Um, I think it's because of the work ethic and and my willingness to kind of show up. Uh, She was like, okay, you got the job. This this is it. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was, that was kind of my intro into design as a career. (laughs) But tell me like now you're in a position where you are on the other side of the table, right? Recruiting people, I guess. Um, If you would be in a position to, that, that somebody would walk in, in a suit and tie with no portfolio, what would your, what would your reaction be? Well, it's a little difficult to say. Um, it really would depend on the person. You know, I, I have hired in the past uh, designers that showed the same kind of work ethic that, that I did. I, w- I would rather hire somebody with a good fit, good culture fit, a good work ethic, uh, you know, somebody that I can see is going to hustle. Um, I would rather hire that guy than the most talented uh, designer who's um, not a good fit or whose personality just doesn't mesh. So I'd rather, Mm -hmm. you know, hands down, I'd I'd always rather hire the the culture fit and the the hard worker. That being said, in order to get an interview at at Blind or the future, um, the portfolio is, is kind of your way in. So if, you know, we... We put out uh, internship applications four times a year. And um, if you have an internship interview scheduled, that means your portfolio passes the test. That is the bar that we use to, to, to hire people. But I also think it's it's a little bit different environment now than it was then. You know, I mean, if you don't have a website today as a designer, you're crazy. Um, when back then it was that big black portfolio book that, you know, weighs a million tons and you bring it into the interviews. So I think it's a different era too. Mm-hmm. So when you look at these portfolios and the websites of designers that apply, is there anything in particular that you pay attention to? Yeah. For a lot of the stuff that we do when I'm hiring designers, typography skill is huge. Um, they can be the best illustrator in the world, the most talented hand letter. Um, but if they don't have basic typography skills, it's 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 kind of a no-brainer because everything boils down to 
uh, layout and typography. Um, so that's one key skill that all of the creative directors here are on the lookout for. And that's because of the type of work you do or because that's kind of the basic principle that you need to um, be good as a designer? Well, a, a lot of times when we're looking for interns, we're looking for uh, that person who's a little bit more of a Swiss Army knife, you know, somebody mm-hmm. that brings a lot of different skills to the table. So that's the ty- the skill in type is a great way to just make sure that they understand the fundamentals of design. Mm-hmm. If they have the eye and the talent to make something pop, even if it's just type. Um, when we hire people for really specialized roles, it can be totally different. You know, I mean, we will hire a calligrapher who has no typography experience whatsoever. Um, mm-hmm. And if, if that's the, if that's the right fit for that job, that's great. If we hire a motion designer or a, uh, you know, 3d artist, uh, those guys aren't expected to have skill in typography. It's always a bonus, but um, yeah, it just kind of depends on the role. Mm-hmm. Got it. I a little bit sidetracked the whole story <laughs> that you started explaining. So you mentioned that uh, now you work at uh, Blind and the future, but what happened in between getting that internship and then um, now ending up at Blind in the future? Oh man, everything happened. <laughs> That's a lifetime. Um, I guess what happened next is I, I, I went from that internship and, and grew in that company from a junior design intern all the way up to senior designer. Uh, so I worked through college. I would work during the day and go to school at night. And then when I graduated, I got a full-time gig there. And I think I spent three or four years there in the in the in the agency there in Columbia, South Carolina. Before I was like, let me go, let me go find something else. Um, I just wanted to like see. I don't know if I wanted to branch out or if I was just kind of looking for another gig. Um, but I felt like it was time to it was time to move on, which was kind of heartbreaking because I loved working there. Um, and I did the <laughs> I made kind of a stupid mistake. And that stupid mistake was I quit before I had another gig lined up. <laughs> and uh, that was 2008, which in the States, that was the, <laughs> that was the start of the recession. Mm-hmm. And when recessions happened, um, creative careers are, they're the first to suffer. Uh, so there was no jobs yeah. in design. There was no jobs. Uh, nobody was hiring freelancers. Uh, it was really not the climate to start an agency. And I, wound up uh, deciding to pull a 180 and and try something else. So I uh, I started applying for government agencies. And I was like, you know, I'm much in 24. I could be Jack Bauer. That's cool. No problem. I got a messenger bag. <laughs> and uh, so I started at the top. I started with the federal government and applied all the way down and eventually um, got a job as a, as a police officer in Savannah, Georgia. That is really like a hundred and eighty degrees turn. Yeah, yeah, and it was. I I was excited. I was excited. It was one of those things where it was like it felt weird to do, but it was. I, I felt like I was starting to get burned out, um, and that gave me the the break that I needed. Um, so mm-hmm. I spent four years in the police department, five years, something like that, and. Uh, Worked my way up from, you know, patrol officer. I think I spent about six months on the street and then I went and uh, did 
did another crazy thing, joined the military. Uh, so I was part-time National Guard, um, spent six months in training there. And then when I got back to the police department, I was promoted uh, three or four times in a very rapid succession and wound up working narcotics with the uh, DEA in a multi-jurisdictional task force. So it was kind of like a, a rapid rise to uh, running wires and doing undercover work mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. What made you then leave the law enforcement and go back to the design? So when, as you, as you kind of like grow in your career, it doesn't matter what it is. You get to these points where the next step is either a huge step forward that not many people get to take, or you kind of have a step backward. And I realized that I was sitting in the wire room. I was like, uh, you know, running these, these cases. And I realized that I was either going to stay here or if I got promoted, I would go back to the streets. I'd have to put a uniform back on. I would mm -hmm. have really crappy days off. And so I started looking for other options and kind of simultaneously, I started to get that itch again to start creating. So I was like, let me, let me just crack open my, uh, my computer. Let me pull open my laptop and, and start messing around with some old stuff. Um, that turned into, pulling in some freelance clients. And I realized that, uh, you know, I could start working while I was running these wiretaps because there's these long stretches of time between calls, you know, drug dealers have to sleep too. Um, <laughs> and instead of walking, watching movies or working out like, uh, I, and come to think of it, I probably should have worked out more, but, uh, instead of doing all that, I worked, And I would uh, bring my laptop in. I would um, work on logos and websites and stuff like that. Eventually, I started making more money freelancing than I was pulling in from the government. And I was like, okay, I kind of have a decision here. I need to, uh, I need to either pursue this or or slow things down. And I chose to to make the jump. Mm -hmm. What kind of clients and projects was that? Were you just like freelancing on? Um at that time popular websites where you basically applied as a designer or was this something more fancy? Oh, it definitely wasn't fancy. And, you know, when I say that I was making more money doing that than I was, you know, as a cop, that's not saying much because police officers don't make a lot of money. So <laughs> when, when I was, uh, you know, when I started freelancing, I was working with past connections So people that I've known from the past, I think I got a job from my grandmother for her golf group once. Uh, it was it was just really small stuff, and it was very scattered. And then eventually, I found uh, Odesk. I think it's Upwork mm -hmm. now, but uh, Odesk at that point was um, it was pretty profitable. I was able to find some some decent sized budgets, but nowhere near where you know everyone should be. But in my mind, at that point, you know, hey. $100 for a logo, man, that's like, that's like five hours at the police department, you know, because I was getting paid maybe $20 an hour for, for being a, being a cop. So I was like, man, the, the money's here. And I'm just like, I became enthralled with the creative process again. And this passion just kind of erupted. And I realized that like, this is, this is really why I'm here. And, and I think that my journey into, law enforcement and a tactical career that had nothing to do with creativity. It was really, uh, 
that's what showed me that passion kind of still existed. And so I jumped mm-hmm. in with both feet. So you were, you were, you were talking about charging hundred bucks for a logo and this not being enough. And, um, I mean, these days you can read a lot about, you know, you have to charge more, you have to be expensive and so on. But for someone who is just starting out, like, is this really a good advice? I think it is. Um, but that being said is, you know, if a hundred dollars is worth it for you, mm-hmm. then by all means go for it. You know, I, I, I don't want to judge anybody by, based on what they charge. That, that's not my purpose. I think that any mm-hmm. logo is going to be more valuable to the client than a hundred bucks, especially if, if it's a logo for a business, uh, because they're going to turn around and use that brand for, uh, you know, to hopefully pull in a whole lot more money. Um, but I also don't want to like shame anybody based on what they're charging. If you're just starting out and you, and you have no formal training in design and, uh, you know, this is just your first rodeo, you cracked open Photoshop, did a few tutorials and you're ready to go, then yeah, maybe a hundred dollars is a great fit. Um, but at the same time, it's like, I would hope that you would hone your skill and hone your business acumen, um, to the point where you can start charging more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I just feel like that sometimes or lately, a lot of people have been trying to just play on this car. Okay, I'm just going to charge a lot and then people are going to think that I'm premium without having any you know, substantial background or experience. And that's, that's where it gets kind of uh, cranky. But it makes sense. I think you have to grow kind of in this, in this story and uh, your career. Yeah. And I also think that like, there's a big difference between running a business and, uh, being a talented designer. So if you're not the one with talent, if you, um, you know, want to go out and charge $50,000 for a logo and you can find like, like a great designer to do that for you for less, well, now you're a business owner, you know, and Mm -hmm. there's, there's totally, there's a totally different vibe there. So I, that's what I said. I don't, I don't want to like judge anybody for, for doing, for doing what they need to do to make ends meet. But at the same time, you know, make sure that you're, you're tall enough to ride the ride make sure that like that, uh, you have the, the skill and, uh, the product to back up the higher price point. Mm-hmm. But I also think on the flip side of that, we just flipped the sides like four times, but on the flip side, <laughs> It's also very easy for creative people to get down on themselves. Mm-hmm. So before yeah. I met Chris in those days of charging a hundred bucks, 50 bucks, you know, $200 for a logo, I didn't think I was talented enough to charge more. And he took one look at my portfolio and he said, absolutely you, you are. You need to, you need to 10 X your rate right now. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really, really easy for creatives to get down on themselves, especially because other people's work is so apparent. It's so easy to find amazing work um, that it's really easy to get down on yourself. So I think that's where kind of having an objective third party, like a mentor or someone to, to say, okay, yeah, you know, you're charging the right rate. Maybe you need to increase a little bit. Oh no, you need to 10 X having that objective third party in my case was great. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. Yeah. And since you mentioned Chris, uh, I think this is a good point where you can also talk about the story of how Chris helped you increase your rates. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And for the members of the audience that are not familiar with who Chris is, um, oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I work uh, for the future, and I also work for Blind. These are two companies owned by the same person, Chris Doe. And uh, Chris is an Emmy award-winning designer. Blind has been around for 22 years. It's his baby. He founded both companies. Um, and Blind has done some pretty incredible work for many, many different uh, Fortune 500 clients. Um, it, check us out. It's, it's blind.com. The future is uh, an education uh, platform that we teach designers business principles. And uh, when I met Chris, it was at the beginning stages of the future as it is now. Um, at that point, there wasn't a brand. Um, at that point, he just made some YouTube videos. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of how I was exposed to him. Um, so going back to my story, if that's cool, I don't know. If sure. That would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, let's talk more no, about no, no. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I had been full-time freelancing for about a year. And I was really focused on how I can find more clients and do the work faster. And so for me, I felt like there was, and, and my story resonates with a lot of people because of the way that I felt here. I felt trapped under this really low ceiling of budgets. I felt like I could not charge anymore. Um, I didn't realize that that was a restriction that I put on myself, but I, that's, that's how I felt. I felt like there was no way that I could get somebody to get somebody to pay a thousand dollars for a logo, not in my wildest dreams. And so I was focusing on finding more clients. I wound up working 18 hours in a day. I had 53 clients. Each one of those clients had a different, like multiple projects each. Um, and I was just grinding it out and I was just, oh, I was to the point of burnout again. And it was at that point that I, that I discovered Chris's channel um, with his partner at the time, Jose Caballero. And they talked about raising rates and they talked about negotiating. And I was just so eternally grateful that I reached out to him over Facebook. And I pretty much just sent him a thank you note. I was like, hey, thanks for, for doing this. Please don't stop. Please don't go away. Please don't leave me. Um, please keep going. And uh, I, you know, it, it's YouTube. So I, I just, I couldn't understand why this Emmy award winning designer was, was giving this stuff away for free. And I just wanted to thank him. And he sends me a message back um, the next day. He says, yeah, no problem. Thank you. Uh, do you want to chat? <laughs> I was like, I was starstruck. I could not believe that this person out in uh, Los Angeles that I had never met would would want to talk to me. I was, I was like, yeah, uh, sure, yes. I mean, what do you say to that, right? You just, you have to do it. Of course. <laughs> so we get on the phone the next day and uh, uh, one of his first pieces of advice to me was, "You, I, I can't help you right now. You have to fire all of your clients. And at that moment, it was just like my, uh, you know, that the scene from all the war movies where like the bomb goes off and then you hear the ringing and no other sound. Happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of that moment for me. And I was like, holy crap, like, oh, my God, my wife and I at that point were trying to get pregnant and we were trying to start a family and we had just moved. And I was like, I can't fire all my clients. And I just I, I said, OK, how do I do this? 
and he walked me through it. So the next day, the very, very next day, I called 53 clients and had 53 awkward conversations and all of my clients left. I fired all of my clients except three. And three people, three companies valued the work that I did so much that they were willing to pay a much staggeringly higher rate um, to keep me on, on the books and to keep me working with them. And so those three clients, uh, the next month, they represented more income, more revenue than all 53 combined for the previous month. That's really awesome. But take us maybe into the details of these stories. So how did you prepare for these calls? You, you said that uh, Chris kind of uh, walked you through how to do it. So what exactly was your preparation in, for this process? Like how do you actually call and what do you say in this call? Mm. Yeah, so he and I worked out a script right there on the phone. And it was a very simple formula. And I'm, I'm hoping that I can remember it off the top of my head. But it went something like this. It's, I, I had to open. I said, hey, listen, you know, do you have some time to talk? Because this is one of those things that, you know, needs some time, right? Mm. So if they didn't have 10 to 15 minutes, I, I, I called them back. And every single thing, each conversation happened over the phone, which is vital. This is not something that you can do over email. And so, you know, I, I spoke with every single person. I said, listen, do you have the time to talk? Okay, great. Um, I think it went something like this. Hey, Johnny, listen, I, I hope you can understand. This is very awkward for me to talk about. It's very difficult for me to say, uh, but I have to run a profitable business. And at the rates that we've been working on is I, I can't make ends meet. Um, I'm going to have to raise my rates. And if, and I gave him the rate, I said, I have to raise my rate to a hundred dollars an hour with a minimum retainer of 10 hours a month. If that's not something that you can swing, I totally understand. Um, we'll, we'll have to part ways, but uh, that's kind of where I'm at. So again, it was a lot smoother, but that was kind of the gist of it. It was like, here's the situation. I mm -hmm. have to do this because I'm raising a family. I'm trying to run a profitable business and I can't continue on at this rate. And if you can't join me, that's... You know, that's, that's okay. We'll have to part ways. And a lot of it was, you know, the responses were very amicable. I mean, everybody was like, hey, I totally, I totally agree. I, I get it. I can't afford those new rates, but I totally understand and wish you the best of luck. Mm -hmm. You know? So 50 people I actually like told you right away, no? Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. Yep. Okay. And that, you know, honestly, that was, that was, that was hard to hear. Yeah. You know, that was hard to hear. But a lot of them were clients that I sourced off Odesk. And the clients that go to sites like Odesk and Fiverr, they're mm -hmm. looking for the deal because they know if they go down the street to the ad agency or the design studio or find some like talented designer on Instagram or, you know, they're looking for the deal. They know they can't afford those other people. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my clients were startups. A lot of them were, you know, garage startups, which is, you know, just let's see if I can fund this business out of my checking account and the spare money I have after my nine to five. And so there was just no way that they could afford that. And that's okay because that's not a good fit for where I needed to be. Mm -hmm. And so acknowledging that not every client is a good fit was huge for me. 
So today, how do you choose clients? You know, like how do you recognize a good client? Yeah, it's uh, it kind of breaks down to to two main things. Is well, maybe three. Number one, do we like you? Do we like working with you? Are you a nice person? Because <laughs> if the if the chemistry is not there, the relationship is going to it's not going to work. More importantly, can we help solve your problems? Do we offer a service that's going to solve your problem? Because if somebody came in and said, listen, the problem that I'm having, oh, and this is actually an applicable example. A lot of times we get leads from our website. Uh, that is people wondering, they go to blind.com and they're like, hey, I'm interested in, in getting my whole house outfitted with new blinds. Now, obviously, that's <laughs> not a good fit, right? So we don't offer a service. To, obviously. Yeah. Um, so we don't offer a service that, that fits or that solves those problems. That's the, that's the second test. And the third test is, can you afford our services? And that's usually the, the, the kicker. And so if we like you, if we can solve your problems, and if you can afford working with us, and if you're ready to invest the level that uh, Blind needs, we're there. Okay. So this is another very important point. So how and when do you ask a client if he or she can afford you? Mm, that's a great question. So that leads into uh, qualifying them on the call. So a lot of designers are very hesitant to talk about money, especially in the first or second call. And that is by policy, something that we require our producers and then myself, whoever's handling new business, we have to ask about money in the first call. And there's a million different tactics, the, the, the uh, ways of fleshing out budgets or, or seeing if we're going to be on the same page. They're all over our, our YouTube channel. My favorite is uh, the budget range. So typically we anchor high, which means uh, we want to set the price bracket. Uh, the low number needs to be, you know, where we want to be. So we want to anchor that. Uh, part of the conversation high. And typically we just ask them like, hey, do you have a budget? Now the client's never going to say, yes, we have a budget. It's never going to happen. Um, they think that by dropping the first number, they lose all power in the negotiation. So <laughs> it's like, no, we don't have a budget. We're working on something else. And then we say, okay, well, typically projects in this range, they, they typically range from 100,000 to 500,000. Is that a range that you're comfortable working within? Or is that an investment that you're willing to make depending on the client? And they're either going to fall off their chair or they're going to say, mm -hmm. yeah, we could probably work something out. And they're always, if, if, if they're, if they're willing to work in the range, they'll always say something to the effect of, yeah, it's probably going to be near the lower side. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it, hands down. It always happens like that. So uh, that's just a really effective way because you can tell by the reaction. If they're like sputtering and they passed out and fell out of the chair and they're like, oh my God then obviously they're not a good fit. And then you can come back and say, okay, well, hey, listen, I'd love, before I say no, that's another powerful, you know, Christoism. Before I say no, did you have a range in mind? Because, you know, depending on the scope, there, there may be something we can work out. And mm -hmm. if, our, if our anchor is 100 to 500K and they come back at 50, well, maybe there's something we can do. Maybe we can reduce the scope. Maybe we can uh, find somebody in our audience to hand the work off to. You know, there's a lot of different things that we can do there. But really what we're trying to do is even when we talk about money, we're trying to provide the client some value. 
So if they can't afford us, if they can't, if they're not a good fit for blind, we're going to do the best we can to pair them with somebody that can help them. Mm-hmm. Except for those but, blinds guys, the guys that want <laughs> blinds for their house, we don't help those guys out. Totally, totally. But look, um, I see brand and like logos as notoriously hard to sell. And correct me if I'm wrong, but like, how do you sell such work, especially at this rate? Can you define your question? Yeah. So what I mean by that is, let's say if you go to McKinsey or any of these management consultancies, you are paying, you know, like they maybe come in and they give you, uh, they try to cut some costs and they tell you, hey, this project is going to cost 300K, but you're going to save a million. So it's it's easy to calculate. Yeah, it makes sense to pay for this project. But when I go to a branding agency, and um, they asked me for 100, 200, 300K, whatever. You know, it's, it, I would assume that for a business person, it's much harder to, you know, pay that kind of money. Mm, I see. So it's very easy for you to sell consulting services because you can pitch the thing on an ROI basis, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Instead of an ROI basis on the projected numbers that you can save them or the the cost savings or the revenue increase, why not look at the ROI in terms of uh, what the client is going to value this transaction, this new logo, this new identity, um, and, and phrase it that way in the sales cycle? So why not ask them, you know, hey, listen, three years down the road, you know, you're very happy with the new identity. You're very happy with with uh, the project, with your life, with your business. What happened? What happened th- there that uh, that made you so happy? And they'll say something to the effect of like, "Oh, well, you know, we got the new logo and that uh, increased sales. You know, we're, we increased sales 130 percent. You know, more than doubled." And it's like, okay, well, what's that? Or, or maybe it's as simple as like the new website works great and uh, it's saving me freaking 10 hours a week. And then you can easily say, okay, well, what's that 10 hours a week worth to you? Okay, so if it's worth $10,000 every single week, I can't even do that math. But we would be, you know, how much would you pay if I, if I offered you an insurance uh, policy on this, how much would you pay for that problem not to happen or for that problem to be solved? And then typically they'll say something like, oh man, if it's going to save me, uh, if, if I'm going to value this at a million dollars, if it's going to bring me $500,000 of business, I would pay $100,000 for that. And bam, now you're into the ROI discussion. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit of a, an advanced kind of negotiating technique. Um, but Really, when we look at like selling a logo for a high dollar point, we're positioned in the marketplace to be one of the premium branding agencies around. So when the right client comes calling, they're expecting to spend that much. And it's not about the ROI of the logo. These clients are buying assurance that the, that the job is going to be done right it's going to be done effectively and they're not going to have to worry about anything in the process. That's the major factor. That's why positioning is so powerful. Um, because when, when clients come to us, they're already primed 
to invest more money in the in the in the identity system um, than say somebody who's looking for a solution on Fiverr. Mm-hmm. And Ben, like you always talk about the importance of you know you as a designer finding your strong point and the kind of positioning in the market. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Like how do you find the thing you want to specialize in and then how do you position yourself on the market correctly? Mm. So this kind of goes back to who you are and what you want to do. A lot of our audience are um, solopreneurs. They're people with, you know, maybe one employee or a small team, but most of them are, are just kind of running solo. And so for those people, I say, look at the intersection of your interests and the thing that you can make money at and what you're good at. I think we have this, uh, there's, a, there's a download somewhere on the future site that has these concentric circles. And you look for the center of the Venn diagram and say I am a brilliant logo designer and I'm really passionate about, you know, I'm an Eagle Scout personally, so I'm really passionate about outdoor sports and, you know, kind of like extreme sports and those kind of activities. And then I'm really good at logo design and logo design is something I can make money at. And so I could specialize in identity design for the extreme sports industry. So you look for those, like the, the intersection mm-hmm. of the Venn diagram. Makes sense. Yeah. But then how do you position yourself? Like once you find that strong point, mm-hmm. how do you go from selling a logo for 5k to 50k? Mm. Gotcha. Is, this, is this something that just happens um, right from the get go? Or is it something you have to develop over time? I don't, I, I think it could happen either way. I mean, you know, with my experience in, in Burnt Creative, we went from selling, you know, I was alone in my loft selling 50 and and $100 logos. And then almost overnight, we just increased everything to in the thousands. So it was two, three, four, $5,000 uh, identity systems. That happened overnight. So that was an exponential increase. And that was just purely a uh, self-confidence thing. It was like, hey, yeah, I'm worth this and mm-hmm. projecting that out there and uh, reworking the website to have a little bit more, you know, better positioning. Instead of Ben Burns Creative, it became Burnt Creative. Instead of I, it became we. Um, so we were positioned, you know, very differently in the marketplace. Then mm-hmm. um, without changing positioning, really, as the confidence increased and as my network increased, I was able to make contacts uh, with people higher up in larger industries. And this happened mm-hmm. organically, you know, taking people out to lunch, um, you know, just getting to know people in the community. And eventually we stumbled into um, several tens of thousands of dollars um, identity projects. So one $20,000, excuse me, one $20,000 logo, another $30,000 identity project. And once you're used to operating at this certain tier and once you can carry yourself in a certain way and talk about the way that you work in a certain way, doors start to open. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like the network has to be there. You have to uh, have people have to know about you and of you. And uh, then you have to be confident enough to ask for the higher budgets and be willing to say no to the, to the, to the clients that don't fit. So you talk a lot about these things also on your website, on the, the future, and also on your YouTube channel. 
And this is another topic that I actually wanted to discuss with you, basically the design education. Mm-hmm. Um, we can start really broad and then let's see where we get to. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is, what do you feel like is missing in a traditional design school? So what, what did you feel, um, what, what did you basically start with in the future? This is a great question. Unfortunately, I'm not the right person to ask uh, because I didn't go to design school. The, the, what I graduated from was this media arts program and it was kind of the bucket of uh, at University of South Carolina threw all their creative classes in that didn't fit anywhere else. So I had a video game class and I had a programming class and just a couple of other things that like they didn't know what to do with. So they put in a bucket and called it media arts. That being said, I, I have recognized in people that I've hired people that I work with um, that have mm-hmm. gone to these design educations. And in my own curriculum, you know, as, as somebody who graduated from a creative program, not necessarily a design program, um, I don't think that you're exposed to any business principles, which is really kind of messed up because as a designer, your primary job is to solve problems, right? Whether that's a communication problem, a perspective problem, your job is to solve problems. And If you don't understand the business reason behind the uh, problem that you're asked to solve, you can't be as effective as, as somebody who knows what you're trying to do. And so learning these business principles, learning how to negotiate and learning how to, uh, how uh, the reason why people want to employ you will only make you a better designer. And that that's just for people who want to learn better at their craft. Mm-hmm. then there's the people who want to be entrepreneurs and these guys like you know you graduate from design school you graduate from a creative education program and you go to start your own business they're lacking the the business principles they're lacking the the primary knowledge that it takes to open and run the business it sounds judgmental to say but that was me i started a business with nothing i mean i i spent some time in the in the small business association, uh, in Savannah there, but I was just, I had no idea what I was doing. So there's this severe lack of, lack of knowledge, you know, even as something simple as saving for taxes, paying estimated taxes, when to hire your first employee, when to, you know, how to lead people, how to manage and delegate. All this stuff is never taught, um, in, in traditional creative programs and design schools. And that's where I see the gap and it's Mm -hmm. vital. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I agree. If you would have to point out just one or two like skills that you feel um, designers coming into the blind and the future lack, what would you point out? Hmm. That's a great question. I would say communication skills. And, and I want to get a little bit more specific. Mm-hmm. So in in design school, from my understanding, you have to talk about work, right? And the terms that you use are often understand inside the design community, but they're really difficult for business people and the lay people of the world, the non-designers to understand. And so what I would encourage people is to is to work on your communication and presentation skills Uh, Because that's going to be vital no matter what you decide to do in your design career. Whether you're pitching uh, a new logo for 
uh, a client and, and you're showing them options or you're trying to convince your superior, a, maybe you work in-house at a bank somewhere that uh, this color is the right color to go with. Working on those communication skills are, it's essential. Um, so that's where I, I, I see, you know, some pretty dramatic improvement to be made. Um, and then in terms of, uh, in terms of like actual design skill, I don't know. I, it, I, I really think that, you know, going back to the basics of typography layout, you know, using the grid, that kind of stuff, you, you can't hurt to at least review. Mm-hmm. So how would you say is the curriculum of the future different from a typical design school's curriculum? Mm. So at this point, we are filling gaps. So we have a lot of uh, business tools. Um, we have a lot of business uh, courses um, that deal with negotiating and setting up a, an infrastructure and delegating and um strategy and, you know, doing discovery the right way, project management, a lot of things that the the typical design school does not cover. Mm -hmm. So that's really where we see our value. And as the future evolves, I can see us adding the things that, you know, the design schools are teaching. So we already have a typography course, which is kind of unique because the typography course, it's very difficult to find typography education online for some reason. It's its like the basics of graphic design. And its you can't find it on Skillshare. You can't find it on Udemy. A lot of these things are just like, they're just not taught online. So our mission right now is to fill the gaps. Whatever design school doesn't teach, whatever design education that you can't find in the wild, that's where we kind of come in and help. Um, but in the future, I could see, I, I think that our curriculum is going to involve, it's going to evolve to include all the standard stuff that you do learn in design school currently. Hey, let, let's, let's kind of um, take the segue towards the end of the conversation. I have a few final questions for you. Sure. Um, so the first one is, what is the worst advice that you hear being given to young designers? Oh, man, I'll, I'll give you this in a story. <laughs> so, even better and it's not even really a story because there's no characters there's no time there's no specific narrative but sometime in between me being absolutely obsessed with photography and going to college somewhere in that two to three years somebody told me that I couldn't make money as a photographer hmm. and I am to this day just haunted that I listened and I'm just like, and I think that that has impacted me in a, in, a, in a huge way because for a long time, I believed that you couldn't make money at being creative. And that's so not the case. You know, you, you can make infinitely more money at a, in a creative career than in a lot of other, uh, other options. So you know, that was just that piece of advice that somebody, somebody told me, like, yeah, you can't make money in that. And I wish that I remembered who that was because I would go back and just smack them. But <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was probably the worst advice that somebody gave me. Okay. And then turning it around, what advice would you give to young designers? Mm. So I've said this before, 
And I think that it's important to realize that nobody has the right answer. Nobody has the magic bullet, especially when you're trying to start a business or a freelance career or navigating inside the design field. Somebody's path, somebody's decisions that they've made may not be the right thing for you. And so, I, you know, I see a lot of designers like on this quest to figure out the key or the magic bullet or, or the solution for um, a problem that doesn't have a master key, that doesn't have a, a magic bullet. So I would say, you know, remain humble, but just realize that nobody has the one right answer. Mm. Okay. And the final question is, um, what is the one thing about design that you've changed your mind about? Well, I, I think it's it's more of a perception shift. You know, I, back in the day, I was very concerned with aesthetics. Uh, I was a pixel pusher. I really like to get things perfect. And, you know, at this phase in my career, I realized that the impact of that chase of perfection is is, you know, it's not as important in the grand scheme of things. And so, like, you know, it's... I think that my perspective on design has has shifted not in the the value of design is is still there but the aesthetics don't have an intrinsic value to me anymore mm-hmm. um and that has been kind of a seismic shift in my approach and my perspective on design mm-hmm. I've seen it like also written on the Futures website saying kind of design is more than just the aesthetics, right? Yes. Yeah. Design is greater than graphics. It's, yeah, it's, it's exactly. all about solving yeah. problems. It really is. And and if you can solve somebody's problems, even if you have a couple pixels out of place, then mission accomplished. Awesome. And I think that's a great place to also thank you for your time and um, to finish this conversation, maybe just as a last uh, question or um, opportunities. So I just want to give you an opportunity also to um, tell listeners where they can find more about you, like, I don't know, Twitter, LinkedIn, or how can they get in touch with you? <laughs> I am most responsive on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle is Mr. Ben Burns. I'm actually Mr. Ben Burns everywhere, YouTube, uh, Instagram, Facebook. You can find me by just typing in Mr. Ben Burns, except for Twitter, in which case, if you find the Mr. Ben Burns and if you get a hold of him, tell him to release my username because on Twitter I am Mr. Ben Burns underscore. So that's where you can find me. And you can also find me on the Futures channels. So that's the future is here on all major social media and then the future.com. Cool. And I'll include the links in the show notes. Thanks again, Ben. Awesome. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. I had fun. Cool, that's it in today's episode. If you do like this show or this episode, I kindly ask you to consider leaving a review or a comment on iTunes or any other podcast app for that matter. Um, This really helps me a lot in getting great guests and also um, it helps other listeners find this show easier on these crowded uh, podcasts apps. And again, if you're interested in how to measure design, to basically show the value of your design work to non-designers and to also know yourself how you're doing, like how you can track the progress of your work, head to beyondusers.com and there you can sign up for a five-day free email course 
and um, in there you will learn what design metrics are, how you can use them on your projects, and um, you'll also get to download a free design metric canvas, which is a framework that you can use in your projects to identify all the appropriate and necessary metrics. So for that, head to beyondusers.com. Cool, that's it for today. Thanks for your attention and see you soon.